Gospel according to John. We'll be looking at uh, the at verses six to thirteen this morning of chapter one, and you can find that on page eight hundred and eighty-six in the Pew Bible. If you're using one of those, uh, once you found your place, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy word? John's Gospel, chapter one, starting in verse six. Hear the word of the Lord. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, We come to receive the blessing from your holy word this morning on no merit of our own. We cry out to you as children of God based on no good thing within us save Jesus Christ and all his redeeming glory. I pray that you would do for us again what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. In the midst of the darkness of our sin, there is a light we need to see this morning if we are to have life, and I ask that you would reveal to us the light of Jesus in all his beauty and splendor and greatness. This is eternal life, that we know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And as you show us Jesus, drive away our unbelief and keep us trusting in him. We pray these things as your undeserving children in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we began our journey through the gospel of the gospel according to John, a book written for the purpose of revealing Jesus to us as the Christ, as the Messiah, the Son of God, in hopes that we would believe upon him and have life in his name. That is the purpose of the gospel according to John, according to what John writes in chapter 20, verse 31. These things were written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you might have life in his name. The question John the Apostle wants us asking at every turn in his book is, what must we understand about Jesus if we are to have life in his name? And what we saw in our last meeting together was that John opens his gospel by showing us that Jesus is the eternal God. In the beginning was the Word... And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
John also showed us that Jesus is, therefore, the creator of all things. We owe our existence to him, and he is worthy of all of our worship. He was in the beginning with God, John says. All things were made through him, and apart from him was not anything made that was made. Jesus is our maker. But he's not only our God to whom we owe all our worship. He's not only our maker to whom we owe all our existence. John showed us that Jesus is also our life-giving light. We humans sit in the darkness of rebellion and sin against our God and maker, Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus himself mercifully exists for us as the light to whom we can run For life. In him was life, John says. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is our life giving light. Now, John, in verses 6 to 13, has a few more things to tell us about this life giving light. He wants us to see the light's witness, the light's coming. And the light's effect. Those are the three things we'll see about this life-giving light. Three things we'll see about Jesus in verses 6 to 13. The light's witness, the light's coming, and the light's effect. So first, let's look at the light's witness. Now, as John's gospel unfolds, we'll see other witnesses to the light than the one witness mentioned here, like the Father himself, or the miracles of Jesus, or the scriptures themselves, and the crowds who are crucifying him. We'll see other witnesses, but it's crucial that we understand the unique role that this particular witness plays if we are to gain a true knowledge of who Jesus Christ really is. So look with me at the light's witness In verses 6 to 8, it says that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And it's clear from the context, especially verses 25 to 28, that he means John the Baptist. So there was a man whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came, it says, as a witness to bear witness about the light. So there is the light's witness He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. Just like the other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John, the apostle, ties his message about Jesus to the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist. Before launching into the earthly ministry of Jesus, each gospel writer connects their storyline to the unique ministry of John. Now that's significant because what each gospel writer makes clear is that John's testimony links the Old Testament's message, which anticipates God's salvation in Christ, it links that message to the New Testament's message, which announces that God's salvation in Christ has arrived. Even though he doesn't appear till the New Testament times, 
John the Baptist is in some ways the last of the Old Testament prophets before the Messiah arrives. He is that end-time prophet anticipated by Isaiah 40, verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. He is that Elijah-like messenger that Malachi promised hundreds of years before who was to announce the day of God's visitation. But unlike the Old Testament prophets who didn't actually see the coming of God's anointed Christ, the coming of His kingdom, the coming of His end-time salvation, the day of God's visitation, John the Baptist does get to see it with his own eyes in the coming of Jesus. That's what it says over in verses 33 to 34. If you look there with me in chapter 1, verses 33 to 34, John says, I myself... Did not know him, did not know him as the Messiah. I knew him as my cousin, but I didn't know him as a Messiah. But he who sent me to baptize with water, namely God, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So like the Old Testament prophets, John is sent by God to bear witness to God's salvation in the Christ, the Messiah. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, John actually gets to see the Messiah and identify him as Jesus of Nazareth. He has the unique privilege and role of bearing witness about the life-giving light. Luke puts it this way in his gospel when he's recounting for us Zechariah's prophetic words about his own son, John the Baptist. He says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall... We're talking about the the light, Jesus being the light. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, which we talked about last week, is the shadow of death because of our sin. God sent John to say, this one right here, this man, Jesus, he is the Messiah and no other person. He is the light that overcomes our darkness. John is the light's witness. He is the burning and shining lamp, as Jesus calls him in chapter 5 of John's Gospel, who, who tells people exactly where they are to find life. They are to find life in Jesus of Nazareth and no other. In fact, John's witness is so significant to understanding the person and work of Jesus Christ that the apostles make John the Baptist's ministry part of the requirements of the disciple who would replace Judas Iscariot among the twelve. In Acts chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, uh, Luke tells us again that the man to replace Judas had to be one of the men who accompanied the disciples during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among them, beginning from John the Baptist. Beginning from the baptism of John until the day when Jesus was taken up from us. It was only one of these men that could become with them an authoritative witness to Jesus' resurrection. 
Now, what that means for us is that we should see the whole ministry of John the Baptist helping us to link the gospel story of Jesus with the prophetic word of the Old Testament scriptures. We don't have a Bible that is pieced together willy-nilly, giving random facts and telling miscellaneous stories for no single point. But we hold in our hands, in this word of truth, we hold here a Bible that is of one piece, that is telling one story, and that story centers on Jesus, our life-giving light, the one to whom all the prophets bear witness And as we'll see throughout John's Gospel, it's by forging link after link after link after link with the Old Testament that we gain a true understanding of Jesus and His work of salvation and thereby have life in His name. Is this not also what we saw of the Gospel when we uh, looked at 1 Corinthians 15? Verse 3, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. It is our Old Testament Word alongside the New Testament Word that makes sense of Jesus' person and ministry, that makes sense of this light. And the ministry of John the Baptist helps us forge this link. So I would encourage you to do like Paul said to Timothy, to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is the Old Testament, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. One other thing that I'd like to point out about the light's witness here is that Notice his role has a twofold purpose. One, of the, one part of that purpose is to bear witness about the light, which, is, which we've seen is a matter of pointing out God's Messiah the expect, and the expected salvation that goes with him. The other part of that purpose is that all might believe through him. That is, that all might believe through his proclamation of the light, his bearing witness to the light, his announcement that the light has arrived. Now, that's not the guaranteed result of his witness. We'll see that later on, but it's certainly the purpose of his witness, that all might believe through him. And what I want us to take home from that is that belief in the light does not come by itself, but through the proclamation of the light. Belief in Jesus as the light will not come apart from the proclamation of Jesus as the light. If our mouths mouths do not announce that His salvation has arrived through His coming, there will be no faith in others. That's not to say that belief will always come when we proclaim the light, but that belief will never come unless people hear of the light. God's plan to rescue His people from darkness, to give faith where there was no faith before, involves the proclamation of the light. That goes for our proclamation of the light to a lost world sitting in darkness without Christ, and that goes for our proclamation to each other who already know Christ. 
but who still wrestled against the darkness of sin and loneliness and temptation and depression and shame. If we are to continue in faith, if we are to continue in trusting Jesus, in holding on to Jesus as the light, then we must open our mouths about Jesus and call each other and send each other emails and text messages and Facebook posts that will announce His salvation. The light must have a witness. Think of how many days pass in your life without hearing of the light, without telling others of the light. Who Jesus is must be announced if we are to continue in faith. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So that's the light's witness. John identifies the light. His role and ministry serve our understanding of Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And it helps. And his ministry helps us see the necessity for proclaiming him. Second, let's look at the light's coming. The reason John is announcing his salvation is because the light has in fact come. Now, this next part makes even more sense of what John said back in verses 4 to 5. Look there with me in verses 4 to 5. It says, In him was life, and life was the light of men. In the life was the light of men, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the lingering question at that point is, how is it, That the Word, who is the eternal God, who has life in Himself, how is it that He is the light of men? Right? How is it that He shines in the darkness? In what way does He shine on humanity? Does He do so from heaven or from some sort of secret place? Or in some new age sense of personal enlightenment? What does John mean the light shines in the darkness? Well, verse 9 tells us what he means. Verse 9 says, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. So how does the light shine in the darkness? The light shines in the darkness by coming into the world. You see, the world is the darkness that the light enters. The world for John is the whole system of rebellion against God. The whole of humanity walking in the muck of their sin and death. And the way Jesus shines in the darkness is by entering, by coming to that broken and sinful and rebellious world of humanity. He comes to the world from without. From outside the world. From presence with the Father. So when it speaks here of the light which enlightens everyone, it's not speaking about the internal internal illumination of every man. Some sense in which everybody knows Jesus savingly somehow or, or in some kind of general knowledge of him. John's point is related more to the objective illumination, the, the light coming into the world. Of, and, and that objective illumination of all people sitting in darkness. 
He's, he's bearing witness to the inbreaking of God's external light upon the dark world. This one called the Word, he comes into the world as a light, not just for Jews alone, but for all the Gentiles as well, for all people. John is not saying here that everyone is enlightened. That proves to be the case when later in his gospel people reject the light in order to love the darkness. Not everyone is enlightened. So John is not saying that everyone is enlightened, but that the light is what enlightens everyone. For Jewish people and Gentile people alike, the whole world, Jesus is in fact God's true light. Now what does that mean? Jesus is the true light. It means at least this, that Jesus reveals the light of God's presence like nothing has before. By coming into the world as a man, Jesus reveals the light of God's presence to humanity like nothing has before. If you think back with me to Isaiah's message, what was the nation of Israel to reflect before the nations? They were to reflect the light of God's presence to the nations, and rightly so. They were God's chosen people, rescued from slavery in Egypt, among whom God himself chose to dwell, and for whom he led in a pillar of fire, giving them light in the wilderness, right? As long as they walked in the light of God's presence, reflecting his glory, they would be a blessing to each other and to the nations. So God told them, out of the mouth of Isaiah, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. Merely, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the ends of the earth. And guess what? No Israelite ever reflected that light save one, Jesus Christ. He is the true light. The one in whom we see the light of God's presence perfectly and beautifully revealed. He is the light for the nations. He is, as God calls, as, as Jesus, who is God, calls himself in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. In his person, we see the light of God's presence in a way similar to, but far better than what Abraham saw when the flaming torch passed through the carcasses. In Jesus, we see the light of God's presence in a way similar to, but far better than what Moses saw in the burning bush. In Jesus, we see the light of God's presence in a way similar to, but far better than what Israel experienced in the pillar of fire in the wilderness. In Jesus, we see the light of God's presence in a way similar to, but far better than what Ezekiel saw in the throne room of heaven, an image of a man enclosed with fire all around, and whose appearance from the waist downward was, as it were, the appearance of fire and brightness around him. Now, is the light we see in Jesus far better because something was lacking in the light of God's presence before? 
No. But the light of God's presence is Jesus is far better because Jesus is the fulfillment of what all these prior revelations of God's light anticipated. Each one awaiting the day when the light par excellence would enter the world, not in the unshielded light of the glory of God, but in a man born of a virgin. And why as a man? For our salvation. For our eternal life, through the dark sufferings of the cross. Through the dark separation felt under the weight of the wrath of God for our sin. Through the darkness of death and the grave to give us life. This is how Jesus shines in the darkness. This is how Jesus shines into the dark world to bring life. He comes into it on our behalf. He enters our darkness to deliver us from it, which means that we must stop looking within ourselves and to the world for the light of life. We do this regularly. My life would be so much better if you fill in the blank. You fill in the blank with what you look for in order to have life. My life would be so much better if I was smarter, if I was a better writer, if I had what she has, if my spouse was like this or that, if the fiscal cliff wasn't looming and Social Security taxes weren't increasing. If I would just get it together and just be a more positive person. True saving light doesn't come from within ourselves. It doesn't come from within the world. That's the darkness that John's saying the light had to enter. True light breaks into the world through the person of Jesus Christ. He knows what God He knows what God's about. He was with him in the beginning. He knows what the universe was about. He created it. He knows where true life is to be found. He reveals the light of God's presence perfectly for you. A presence we once knew in the garden and lost because of sin. A presence that we're waiting on in the new Jerusalem. But which we experience now by faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So don't look to what the world offers for life. More money, better sex, new gadgets, fancier cars, extra channels, popular psychology, appealing philosophies. None of these will lead to true life. They'll all leave you in darkness, in rebellion against God, enslaved to sin, ensnared by the cosmic powers over this present darkness, following Satan's lies. We must continue looking to Christ. He is 
the true light that brings life to the world. He lifts us up from the shadow of death, Luke 179. He shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. He turns us from darkness to light that we might receive the forgiveness of sins through His cross and resurrection, Acts 26.18. He purchases for us an armor of light as as His children of light that we might walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. Romans 13.13. So look to Him. He shines for your advantage, for your eternal life. Third, and finally, we see the light's effect. So we've seen the light's witness, which tells us that the light has come. We've seen the light's coming, and now we see the light's effect. That is, the effect of His coming. When the light shines in the darkness, when the light is coming into the world, He leaves no ground for neutrality. The light has two effects. It generates two reactions from people, namely unbelief and belief, distrust and faith, rejection and reception. When confronted by the light, everyone responds. Everyone responds. It's just that some reject the light while others embrace the light. The unbelief we see in verses 10 and 11... It says there, he was in the world, meaning he came into the world. It's not that he was in the world always. He came into the world. So he was in the world. What happens when he comes into the world? And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. That's a huge dilemma, is it not? He was in the world, and the world was made through him. (laughs) Yet... The world did not know him. The world didn't even recognize its maker. That's a huge problem. Reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 1 about the whole world of mankind suppressing the truth about God despite the fact that his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly displayed since the beginning of creation in the things that have been made. Who made those? We saw that in... Verse 3, Jesus made those. God made the world through him. Someone might object, well, it's not like the guy showed up in glorious array. He took the form of a man. Who would have recognized him as creator of the world? John's got an answer ready in verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not Receive him. In other words, John is saying, let me show you how corrupt the human race is. Not only are you unable to recognize your maker when he shows up, but you wouldn't believe in him even if God told you who to look for. That's what he's saying about the human race. If anyone in the world should have recognized the light, it would have been Israel, God's chosen people. 
Salvation is from the Jews, chapter 4, 22. So to them, Paul says, belonged the, the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises and the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. If anybody should have recognized Jesus, it is Israel. So the world is responsible to know him, but doesn't. Israel has the light of God's revelation and not only doesn't know him, but even refuses to receive him when he tells him who he is. Unbelief is the natural state of all humanity in rebellion against God. It's what characterizes the world. It's what characterizes characterizes us before we knew Christ. To be left in unbelief means that we never have life as well. We only get life, remember, by believing in Jesus' name. When we remain in unbelief, we only get death. And in John's Gospel, he'll flesh out later that that means eternal death, separation from God, outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So who then can be saved? Who then will God deliver from darkness and give new life in Christ? Namely, only those who believe. Only those who respond with faith in Jesus' name. Only those who welcome the light into their lives. While verses 10 and 11 give us a picture of humanity in its darkened natural state of unbelief, verses 12 and 13 give us a picture of God's children in their supernatural state of belief. Read them with me. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So contrary to popular opinion, not all people, like Kevin talked about a couple of weeks ago, not all people are children of God in the sense John is talking about here. You must be given the right, the divine privilege to become children of God. And obtaining that right only comes when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in some cheap sense of mental assent to facts about this man named Jesus, but a full allegiance to Jesus, a total trust in him. You uphold his claims, you treasure his every word. You love the light and you walk in his ways. Only these people does God give the right to become children of God. But that's not something that comes naturally to us, is it? What comes naturally for us, as we just saw, is unbelief. So we might ask then, how does such faith even happen if we're, when we're part of the darkness? When we're part of this world system in rebellion against God? How does that come about? How does such a desire to welcome the light arise when you, with the rest of the world in Israel, are bent on rebellion against the light? What happened to me that I, foolish hater of the light, am now numbered among the children of God? Verse 13 tells us. If you believe in Jesus' name this morning, verse 13 tells us that you've been blessed with a supernatural birth. God caused you to be born again. 
The ones who believe in verse tw- the ones who believe in verse 12 are those who were born it says not of blood and literally there it's bloods plural not of bloods meaning children of God are not born by two bloodlines coming together two humans begetting children nor the will of the flesh meaning no mere act of human flesh could ever produce a child of God. We'll see that in chapter 3 when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, was born of flesh is flesh, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, or a husband there, meaning a husband's decision and clout could never force God's hand in this matter. So neither of those three, not, not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's how you're numbered among God's children. That's why you believe in Jesus. 1 John 5, 1 says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. Has been born of God. Of His own kindness. God Himself beget you if you are in Christ. Isn't that what Jesus tells Nicodemus must happen to him? If he's to see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You must be born again, Nicodemus. Your Jewish lineage does not matter. You must be born again. Your Jewishness, your family line contributes nothing to your salvation. God, by his spirit, must cause you to be born of God. So no human act begets Children of God. What begets children of God is God. And you know what happens when he begets children? Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith is the first cry of the new birth. God's children believe in Jesus' name. They trust in his person. They welcome the light. If you believe in Christ this morning, if God has blessed you with the right to become his child, then you've been born of God. Takes your breath away, doesn't it? It took John's away when he writes in 1 John 3, 1, See or behold what kind of love the Father has shown us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. No human act of my own could make me a child of God. I was helplessly lost, resisting the light of God's presence in Christ, preferring my sin to his life, and now I call him Father. With no anger in his eyes toward me, but only grace. How in the world did that happen? God. That is the only answer. His divine, supernatural Birth. All of my rights in becoming his child are owing to him. This ought to produce worship in the Christian life. Worship stems from seeing that you deserve nothing but hell for your unbelief and could do nothing to change that in your darkness. And God pursued you and transformed you into his child. Every resistance being overcome, every rebellious inkling toward Christ conquered, every spurning of the truth overpowered through divine birth. God's giving you a new nature. God replacing your obstinate heart with a heart of faith. 
The whole of our Christian life, therefore, ought to be one massive thanksgiving to God for receiving what we do not deserve. Moreover, our divine birth speaks to how we ought to live together as God's children. We'll see what, this, what these children look, what these, the lives of these children look like as we go through the Gospel of John, especially after chapter 13 onward. God's creating a family on this earth that's unlike any other family. They live together in certain ways. If nothing of our divine birth was due to our human initiative, then how could we ever boast over one another or look down on another brother or sister or live in ways that communicates, I am somehow better than you. I'm a better Christian than you are. Our relationship with God through Christ, our proper response to the light by receiving Him is totally owing to God. And therefore, we celebrate together not ourselves in our own doings, but God in His doings within us by His Spirit. So it affects our worship of the Lord for getting something we don't deserve, namely eternal life in Christ. It affects our relationships with one another by destroying pride. It also, reflects, it, it also affects our evangelism our mission to the world. That children are born of God also gives us great courage in our evangelism efforts, especially when, as we saw above, belief only comes through proclaiming Jesus. It's not one's Jewishness or another's noble birthright that makes people children of God, but only God alone. And He promises to use the proclamation of the gospel to cause, to bring about that new birth. It means that we can go up to people and tell people it doesn't matter what your background looks like or how bad it is. As screwed up as it may be, if you will turn to Christ in the gospel, God will give you the right to become children of God. Even Peter tells us that people from among Jews and Gentiles alike, are born again through the living and abiding Word of God. A word we saw earlier must be announced, proclaimed. Thus we can proclaim it with hope that God is completely able to beget more children who will receive the light. So whether it's our worship or our own interaction with each other or our mission to the world, this divine birth underlies it all but not so that our focus will be on the new birth, but so that the new birth will keep our focus on the light whom we are receiving and looking to and pointing people at toward. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm thankful for your life-giving light, and I'm thankful for the witness we have to that light in the Word of God and the apostles' preaching. I'm thankful that the light has come into the world to bring us life through his death and resurrection, 
I'm thankful that you have caused us to be born again to a living hope. I pray that you would give us great courage this morning in your manifold kindness to us. And we might go throughout the rest of this week marveling and wondering that we are called children of God. And that you would open our mouths in the proclamation of the good news that more might see the light and come to him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.